Our scripture reading this morning is from the 11th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. I'm reading from the message translation. When Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out my son, called him out of Egypt. But when others called, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods. He played at religion with toy gods. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon, that I lifted him up like a baby to my cheek, that I'd bent down to feed him. Now he wants to go back to Egypt or go over to Assyria, anything but return to me. That's why his cities are unsafe. The murder rate skyrockets, and every plan to improve things falls to pieces. My people are hell-bent on leaving me. They pray to God, Baal, for help. He doesn't lift a finger to help them. How can I give you up, give up on you, Ephraim? How can I turn you loose, Israel? How can I leave you to be ruined like Admah? Devastated like lackless Zebuim. I can't bear even to think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. And so I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Because I am God and not a human. I'm the Holy One and I'm here in your very midst. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Today's message is a love story. Now I want to make a confession that men don't usually make. I enjoy a good love story. I know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a romantic at heart. Do you have a favorite love story? Maybe it's one of the classics like Romeo and Juliet or Rhett and Scarlet and Gone with the Wind. My guess is in this generation, most of us like movies, love stories, Casablanca. Some of you are old enough for the, the movie that was actually Love Story. <laughs> Titanic, When Harry Met Sally. You know, I don't know what ones you like. The Notebook is another Romeo and Juliet type love story that's set in the 1940s. Many of you have read or probably seen the movie. An elderly man is reading a notebook to a fellow nursing home resident who does not seem to know him. Only as the story nears its conclusion does Allie, who suffers from dementia, recognize Noah as her husband in a few brief moments of connection. The notebook is the story of their lives, how they fell in love. It's written by Allie when she still had her memory, and when she knew she was losing her memory, she gave it to Noah with the promise that when he read the notebook to her, she would find her way back to him. It's a touching love story. Several years ago, prior to the passing of Betty Jo's parents, her mother, Betty, 
was living with Parkinson's and with Parkinson's-related dementia. And the disease had progressed, and she could seldom communicate with the family, and often we didn't know if she really knew who we were. One evening, the extended family were gathered together with Joe and Betty, sitting at their dining room table eating pizza. And we began to talk about music, and we asked Dad what music he and Mom liked. And he mentioned some old songs and some old hymns. And after we talked a few minutes, we began seeing one of them. And suddenly, Betty Jo's mother began to sing along with us. And I watched her as she leaned into her husband, Joe. And for a few moments, she connected again. It was a wonderful moment in a lifelong love story. Today's story is a different kind of story. It's a story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah at the same time that Hosea is the prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. In the 7th or 8th century before Christ. It's in the closing years of Jeroboam II's reign. Assyria is now the new world power. It was a time of great unrest. In fact, six kings followed Jeroboam in only 20 years. A very significant period of unrest. God spoke to Hosea through his own life experience, his own personal anguish and suffering, and then he spoke through, Isaiah, uh, through Hosea to his people. Israel had broken her covenant relationship with God. The nation had begun to adopt the pagan Canaanite-centered worship and religion into their lives. Essentially, it was a fertility cult, and it centered around the worship of Baal, the god of rain and fertility. Baal literally means Lord. And they worshipped him as Lord of the winter rain and storms. They were critical to their survival in a desert land where rain heals and nurtures the land. For the Canaanites, Baal meant fertile crops, fertile flocks, fertile families. It was all tied together. The temple prostitutes were more than just the satisfying of carnal sexual desires. The people believed it was about their survival. And it was in this context that Hosea felt led to marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute. Most scholars believe she was probably one of the temple prostitutes. The scripture says Hosea married Gomer and she gave birth to a son. And God said to Hosea, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. If you go back into 2 Kings chapter 9, you read about the village and the plain of Jezreel that is associated with this bloody purge of Jehu. By the time of Hosea, this purge is viewed with a kind of abhorrence. It was like naming your son for a massacre. 
Then the scripture says, Gomer conceives and gives birth to a daughter. And God tells Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, because he will no longer show love to Israel. And it's pretty clear that Hosea is suffering in a loveless marriage. Finally, Gomer conceived and gave birth to another son, and God said, call him Loami, which means not my people. And the implication is that this child is not Hosea's child. Gomer has gone from the home. She's back to her previous life. And Hosea's pain and grief overwhelm him. And then God speaks to him again in chapter 3. Hosea says, God ordered me, start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend. Your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people. Even as they flirt and party with every guard that, God that takes their fancy. And Hosea says, I did it. I paid good money to get her back. It cost me the price of a slave. Then I told her, from now on, you're living with me. No more sleeping around. You're living with me, and I'm living with you. Now, obviously, that's not the traditional love story. But it is the context in which God spoke to his prophet and his prophet spoke to the people of God. Hosea responded with this unexpected love and forgiveness because he had experienced the same kind of love and mercy from his heavenly Father, from God. The prophet's love, in some ways, mirrors the re a reflection of the love of God. You see, the judgment that was coming upon Israel was not the, God's anger or reflection of that anger, but it was just the consequences of their brokenness and their broken covenant relationship. Hosea understood that his experience with Gomer in some small way was an example of how Israel had related to God. And his unreserved love and heartbreak just reflected God's unconditional love. His heartbreak provided that glimpse of a broken-hearted God. Now in the closing verses of the text we read this morning in the 11th chapter, it's pretty clear that God will sometimes allow us to go our own way. But it's also clear that God never, ever gives up on us. No matter who you are, no matter what you may have done, no matter how unworthy you believe you are, God loves you. God loves you. Hosea says, never says that Israel loved God, but he says that the Lord is the one who loves. If this was not the case, then he would have responded to us like we often respond to other sinners. 
He would have destroyed us. He would have destroyed us. But God says, I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Because I am God and not a human. I'm the Holy One, and I'm here in your very midst. God has a fierce love. Love. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love. You see, God continues to love because God is love. It's not merely something that he does. It's who he is. It's his nature. He is love. We read stories sometimes about fathers and mothers that continue to love and care for wayward sons and daughters. And we hear them say, but he's still my son. She is still my daughter. The thought of giving up on some of his children creates unspeakable anguish in the very heart of God. It goes against his nature. It goes against his character. God is love. At the age of 20, as he was nearing the completion of his university studies and and engaged to be married, George Matheson learned that he was going blind. And when he broke the news to his fiancée, she decided she could not go through life with a blind husband and broke the engagement. Before losing his sight, he had written two books on theology, and some felt that if he had not lost his sight, he would have been one of the great leaders of the Church of Scotland. His sister, a younger sister, offered to care for him, and with her help, he began pastoral ministry and wound up preaching to over 1,500 people a week, even though he was blind. But the day came in 1882 when his sister fell in love and decided to get married. And as she prepared for marriage, the night before the wedding, the whole family had left to get ready for the celebration, and he was alone, and he was facing the prospect of not having the one who had been so supportive of him with him for the rest of his life. And he may well have been thinking about his own marriage or his own engagement and and the failing engagement. But he wrote a hymn. And he said afterwards that he wrote the hymn in only a few minutes and that it was the only hymn he ever wrote that required no editing. The opening verse goes like this. O love, that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O love, that will not let me go. That's God's kind of love. It's God's kind of love. The prophet says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. 
You see, until our hearts and lives reflect this kind of love, we do not understand our Heavenly Father. Until our actions mirror the love of Jesus, we do not truly comprehend our Savior's love. You see, we're not merely to believe that Jesus is the way. We are to adopt his way of living. It's not just a new set of things to believe. It's a new way of living. His way of loving. His way of forgiving. His way of suffering, long-suffering love. You see, so many of us have adopted the culture and values of our society. And that's exactly what Israel did. They adopted the values of their society. But Jesus said, we will be judged by how we love. By how we love. God's way is a revolution. It is an entirely new way of living. How do we care for the poor? How we respond to the sick? How we welcome the immigrant? How we visit the prisoner? How we care for the outcast? The least of these. That's how Jesus judges our love. Our compassion. The Christian life is not about rituals. It's about changed lives. Lives changed by an encounter with a God who loves us and gives us a new capacity to love. I, I remember another Sunday morning like this one many years ago in the town where I grew up in northwest Missouri. My dad was preaching and my grandparents were visiting with us for worship today and they had brought along my great aunt, my grandfather's sister, Margaret. She had run a very high fever as an infant and was left with mental and physical disabilities and limitations and epilepsy. She had outlived her mother, we called her little grandma, and my grandparents now helped care for her. In some ways, Margaret lived all her life as a child. That day, as my father extended an invitation for folks to open their hearts to Christ, my great-aunt Margaret said something to Grandpa, slipped out into the side aisle, and shuffled her feet to the front. My dad took her by the hand and helped her sit down. He said to Margaret, Margaret, why did you come this morning? Margaret said, I want to have Jesus in my heart. Dad said, have you ever asked Jesus to come into your heart? Margaret said, yes, but it was a long time ago when I was a little girl. I just want him to know I still mean it. I still mean it. We have a chance to revisit old commitments. We have a chance like my Aunt Margaret to say, I still mean it. We serve a God who loves us in ways we cannot fully comprehend. He invites us to a life of transformative love. Many of us have told him that we want to live a new way. 
Do you mean it? Do you still mean it? Every day, we have an opportunity to say to God, I still mean it. I still mean it.